This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use and provides general information only and does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs. BT Investment Talk by BT Investment Solutions is a monthly podcast produced exclusively for Australian financial advisors. Our investment experts, together with some of the world's leading fund managers, will provide thought leadership on a wide range of investment topics. Investment Talk is all about looking beyond the numbers, helping advisors cut through the noise, enabling them to have meaningful investment and portfolio construction conversations with their clients. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this instalment of Invest Talk. My name is Michelle Heinrich, and I am the State Manager for New South Wales and ACT for BT Investment Solutions. I'm here to support you and your clients around the full suite of active and index solutions on offer from BT Investment Solutions. Today, I'm incredibly pleased to be joined by Corin Collicott, the Chief Investment Officer for BT Investment Solutions. Corin has led the investment team since 2017 and is responsible for around 45 billion in funds under advice. This includes the advanced range of managed funds, the core series active SMAs, and the passively managed index solutions, all of which are available on both the BT Panorama Compact and full menu. Welcome, Corin. Thank you, Michelle. Well, Corin, we'll get straight into it. Um, we know that the macroeconomic environment of today is a stark contrast to that that we saw in the COVID and even pre-COVID era. Could you share with us what some of the major macro drivers have been over the 12 months to June? Certainly. One of my reflections and from an investment perspective is that the financial year 2022 was the year we feared and the year we knew had to happen. Um, however, of course, predicting when it would happen as always has proved to be very difficult. Let me explain um, what I mean by that. I think we need to look at FY22 in the context of the post-GFC era, the so-called Goldilocks era for, investment, for investors. Um, following the widespread adoption of quantitative easing, we have lived with ultra-low inflation and interest rates and abundant liquidity, which has fed into rising asset prices for now well over a decade. And we knew at some point this unusual situation had to end. Now, as investors, we know that rising interest rates from very low levels would negatively impact all asset prices through the discount rate effect, which also meant that that would be a year or a time when diversification would be very challenged. And we knew that interest rates would be very sensitive to rising inflation, which we were keeping a close eye on. What we didn't know was that it needed the combination of a global pandemic and a hot war within an integrated global economic system to bring forth that change. So COVID brought inflationary pressures from both supply side bottlenecks given the economic shutdowns and demand side price pressures resulting from the stimulatory policy responses. And then we add to that the disruptive effects of a physical and invasive war between two countries that are major global suppliers of food and energy, another shock to global inflation. And I'm pretty confident that both these scenarios didn't typically feature in investors' forecasts. So in 2022, we have seen a significantly shift higher in commodity prices, particularly energy, putting central banks under the spotlight. 
So central banks have been and are facing uh, a pretty big challenge of curbing soaring inflation while also maintaining economic growth and also while winding back emergency policy measures still in place from the pandemic. All of this has led to deteriorating risk sentiment as investors worried about how aggressive central banks would be and how high interest rates would impact global growth. In other words, the rising risk of stagflation. And we add to that the geopolitical front, which in addition to the Ukraine conflict, now has tensions rising between the US and China, which is also of a major concern to investors. Some pretty significant headwinds there, no doubt. So what has that actually meant for the investment markets and investor returns over the last year? So over the last year, we've seen both developed and emerging share markets fall across the globe with international developed markets um, losing about 6.5% for the year and emerging markets, the hardest hit, losing 18.4% for the year. Uh, while back at home, the Australian stock market was down 6.8% over the same period. In addition, we also saw global and Australian listed property prices fall 10.5 and 11.2% respectively for the year ending 30 June 2022. Rising interest rates also impacted normally safe bond markets. So international bonds were down 9.3% and Australian bonds down 10.5% over the year, something we haven't seen for around 30 years. All in all, we've seen large falls across all the major liquid investment asset classes. Mm, and of course, advisors and investors are particularly interested in how that has affected the BT and advanced funds performance. So how did we go compared to the markets and our competitors? Yes, well, as a consequence of the above, we've seen the advanced diversified funds deliver one-year returns to 30 June of between negative 72 and negative 7.7%, which is quite a tight spread and reflective of the lack of diversification given what happened over the year. What is also interesting is that we have seen a strong rebound in most of the major risk asset markets over the month of July, with Australian equities, global equities, and listed property all up between five and 10%. As a consequence, the monthly returns for the diversified funds are expected to deliver returns of a positive three and a half to 6% across the diversified funds. So very roughly speaking, more than a half the losses for the year we've already been seen made up in the month of July alone. So I guess we should also remember that this financial year's negative returns are still generally more than offset by the outsized positive returns we received from the same markets for the previous financial year. In terms of active management, I think the most challenging asset class we saw were for global equities managers with portfolios highly sensitive to relatively small positions in energy, overweights or underweights to emerging markets and a position of um, the exposure to US and in particular US mega caps. So this was true for our global equities asset class. Um, However, noting that we gave back a large portion of the positive alpha returns from the previous year. whether it's for absolute returns from the capital markets or from our managers, we've really seen a bit of a give back over this financial year, but not enough to offset the very large returns we saw both relative and absolute from the previous year. 
Um, in terms of being competitive, and you know, while it's been a very challenging year for our funds, we note that the diversified multi-blends continue to deliver above median returns over longer periods of two to seven years, um, quoting the Mercer Peer Universe. Great to hear that. And it certainly has been a challenging environment for all of us. Um, well, current BT Investment Solutions is definitely well known for its long-term strategic approach to asset allocation and portfolio construction. Given the sell-off um, in both equity and bond markets in calendar 2022, a lot of advisors might be asking the question, does a strategic approach still have relevance for long-term investors? What's your thoughts around that? Yes, thank you for this question. And, and the answer is a, is a yes. I, I, we still believe that a strategic approach to taking risk, which is appropriate to your goals and your risk tolerance, still makes sense, especially as an anchor for your portfolio. That's not to say we don't believe in diversifying that strategic risk in as many ways as possible. And let me go through a few of those. So for example, within strategic risk, we have diversified into alternative asset classes. And I'll quote, you know, our liquid alternative managers that we have. Um, we also have been moving more into private markets. If anyone's been watching the developments in the funds, uh, in, in especially um, on private debt and a real assets program. Of course, there's active management with stock selection, uh, which is effectively short-term um, movement in exposures coming from the activities of the various underlying fund managers. More recently, we've also kept, kept an open mind and introduced an alternative approach to strategic risk by introducing a risk parity manager into the advanced diversified funds. Um, and that, that um, fund manager is well known. Um, fund manager called Bridgewater. It's also true that we believe some use of dynamic allocation where we can identify skill and a path to implementation uh, is a good idea. And we'll cite also another relatively new manager we've added to the portfolios called Pinebridge. Um, and that's a manager that's uh, maybe often um, labeled as a diversified growth manager, but does move the exposures uh, around um, for taking into account shorter timeframes than we would normally do. So we're still cautious about how much of the total risk budget we would give to all of these strategies, um, especially the dynamic gas allocation strategies, just bearing in mind, you know, as an example, the snack back we just saw in July, just demonstrating how challenging short-term market time is. I think when you combine all of these types of investments, we get attractive processes and portfolio construction diversification, which improves our fund's expected risk return, adjusted outcomes, and collectively introduce a variable beta profile to the existing SAA process, which helps us diversify return drivers across a number of macroeconomic cycles. So I guess you say the, the strategic approach still needs to be there, it's the anchor and it's focused on your long-term goals and your risk tolerances. And then we supplement that with a whole range of other investment programs, which makes sure that there is quite a lot of dyna dynamic investment decision-making underlying the, underlying the strategic risk. That's really interesting to hear that evolution, Corin, um, given that a lot of people have historically believed that st strategic asset allocation means no evolution. So. It's great to hear some of those insights into how the investment team 
is using um, the analysis that you do to continue to evolve. Um, just harking back now to um, investment returns, and, and you certainly made the comment around it's been a long time since investors have experienced such negative returns. Should they or we be concerned? Yeah, so I think there's always concern when you see a negative print um, in a statement and, and the press will always focus on one year. Um, and I think it's true that most super funds have uh, produced negative returns for this financial year. Um, but this only represents, I believe, only the fifth negative year in the full 30 years of compulsory super. And again, just remembering in stark contrast to last year's double digit returns. I think the point I'd want to make is that super funds deliberately take risk in order to deliver returns above CPI over the long term. And so for, therefore it's reasonable to expect negative returns over short, shorter time horizons along that journey. Um, remembering the discussion about you know, um, what happened this year, this year is a particularly big year in terms of a major shift in the global inflation and interest rate regimes. And, uh, and in particular, it was the June quarter where we witnessed the largest falls. As I described earlier, the pictures already changed as at the end of July, only one month on. So I think it's a good time to remember that point in time retrospective returns do not always inform the success or otherwise of an investment strategy, especially in examples focusing on one, one year um, returns um, like the one we've just had. And another example I can quote is that for this particular financial year, we've seen around a 20% return differential between unlisted and listed property indices, which in our view is an unsustainable gap. All, all in all, I think, you know, the year we've had in the context of what returns we've enjoyed for over a decade and last year, and all the major changes that we've seen in the world represent um, nothing to be particularly concerned about for most of us with continued long-term time frames for investing in front of us. Thanks. And, it, and it's certainly worthwhile um, commenting again on the focus on real or after inflation returns, because at the end of the day, really, that's what investors um, spend and, and use to put food on the table. So it's great that we continue to exercise that discipline around that long-term real return focus. Um, I, I'd like to turn now to maybe a little bit more of a deep dive into what's going on within the BT and advanced funds. So you talked a lot about the evolution of the asset allocation and touched on some of those more dynamic managers that were introduced. Um, what about what's going on within the underlying active manager portfolios? So for example, we have seen some big changes um, in where active equity managers are moving to, where some of our active bond managers are moving to. Could you give us a little bit of insight there? Yes, well, in terms of, you know, um, in, in addition to the initiatives that I talked to earlier, we do continue research how to refine our portfolio positioning in light of the evolving capital markets. And as you're alluding to, one of the major pieces of work that we've, um, which is really business as usual these days, is working with underlying fund managers to discuss the current and forward-looking macroeconomic landscape. So you may have seen a, a few changes we've made to, to manager lineup, in particular across international and Australian equities, 
really with an idea to improve diversification within the asset classes and really to increase the focus on quality companies that have some future pricing power. So when we talk to, to equity managers, whether they're a growth manager or a value manager, um, the interest rate and, inf and inflation rate environment um, really affects security prices in very similar ways. Um, and thinking about what to do from a security selection perspective uh, is where we've been getting uh, a little bit of comfort um, that managers are thinking about the, the broader risks in the portfolio. Some of them have moved early um, and that uh, accounts for some of the uh, underperformance we've seen in the year um, to date. Um, and that also uh, is the same for some of our bond managers who are also much more active at the moment, just given this regime shift. So we're seeing them taking different duration positions um, and with varying degrees of success to date, um, but noting that it's very early. Um, we are getting diversification. There's no clear picture. I think there's still a diverse range of views within the fund managers, whether they're bond or equity managers, in terms of exactly how persistent inflation will be or how aggressive you know, the hiking of interest rates by various central banks will be relative to what's in the curves. Um, but it is true that the dialogue um, and portfolio shifting is definitely becoming more active. And so it is a improved environment for active management going forward. Although, you know, I, I, I add the caveat that even doing so still takes three to five years in most instances um, before the, the, the fruits of those decisions become evident. Patience is a virtue indeed. And lastly, Corin, I'm sure many of our listeners would be interested in BT Investment Solutions' future with the announced sale to Mercer. How is the investment team feeling about the sale and, and what might actually be in store? Yes, thank you. That's, uh, you know, that's, it's a genuinely exciting opportunity um, for us as a team and for the portfolios that we manage. Um, and the language uh, between ourselves and Mercer is that it's a merger. It's a merger of funds, you know, across the, um, the, the discussed SFT on the super side and the purchase of the advanced funds. It is a bringing together of two sets of portfolios of roughly equal size. And it's also bringing together two investment teams of roughly equal size. Um, so that, that gives us a lot of comfort um, about consistency in the way that we manage portfolios going forward. We have got an open dialogue with Mesa. You know, investment philosophies are broadly consistent. So, you know, there's no obvious challenges from that perspective is what I can say. Um, but if you think about it, you know, going from being owned by you know, a, a, a commercial bank to a business who is global and sole focus is on investing and providing retirement solutions, is a pretty big win for uh, an investment team. Um, it's also true, you know, in, in this acquisition, uh, amongst many others by, by, the, um, by the parent company of Mercer, is that it's a growing um, company that's investing money um, and that's looking to the future. Um, in addition, if we have a look at um, what Mercer has been doing and, and what they've got on that side, you know, we see additional capabilities. You know, one example is that they, they, they appear to be more developed in their, 
the capacity and capability in some of the private markets, um, which we are very keen to explore um, and which dovetails very neatly with our area of focus, as I was talking about earlier. So I think really it's, it's a case of more scale, more resources, um, investing for the future. Uh, uh, and um, I think that all in all, just can't be anything but positive. I know the timing is um, first quarter or first half of 2023. So what happens between now and then? From, from, uh, from a perspective of you know, integration, of course, there's a, a, a lot of projects going on in, in particular to make sure that handover um, is done smoothly and there's a lot of administration that needs to be done um, in terms of making sure that data and clients and members um, are all smoothly moved and transitioned across. Um, what is true is that, you know, my expectation and, and discussions is that there's, there's minimal investment activity expected leading up in, into the transaction is one of the reasons um, that Mercer has actually acquired Advance. So um, what I can say is I'm not looking at a runway of um, portfolio disruption by any means, in fact, closer to the opposite. That sounds great. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the context around that sale, as well as the rigour that goes into the investment process and its ongoing evolution does give us a lot of comfort. And I'm sure it does give both our advisors and investors a lot of comfort, particularly in these highly volatile and uncertain times. So, so thank you so much, Corin, for, for sharing those insights with us. For those of you listening, looking for further details around fund performance or added technical investment support, please do visit us at www.bt.com.au forward slash professional forward slash solutions forward slash investments, or you can always reach out to your friendly state-based representative. I trust you did find this podcast of value. Feedback is always appreciated. So please do let us know if there are other topics that you would find useful in client conversations. So thank you to Corin um, for sharing your insights and thank you to you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Not at all. Thank you very much from my side.